I'm Clarissa Marks, and you are listening to On Wandering. I'm re-releasing the episodes I recorded last year under a different show name, and this is one of my most listened to so far. It's about Jews and race, more specifically Ashkenazi Jews, Jews of European descent who are the majority in the U.S. and Europe, and who have a complicated relationship with being white. I spoke to Dr. Elliot Ratzman, a former professor of mine who specializes in Jewish studies, race, and social justice and religion. At the time, he was working on a book on Jewish ethics and critical race theory. We recorded this conversation in December 2019, and a lot has happened since then. But this conversation unpacks the history that shapes our current events on Jews, race, and anti-Semitism today. I'd also like to add a note that while this episode focuses on the intersection of race for Ashkenazi Jews, I want to uplift the experiences of Jews of color that are often less visible. So if you or someone you know identifies as a Jew of color and would like to share your story or viewpoint, let me know. My contact info is in the show notes. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Elliot Ratzman. talk a little bit about the book that you're working on. Could you tell me what your your current title of the book that you're writing is? Sure. So the working title is uh, Between Precarity and Power, uh, mm-hmm. Reckoning with Race. The precarity means Jewish communities in modern periods have existed precariously uh, as minorities within nations and within hostile, mostly Christian, but also Muslim countries. And the power part is that Jews in the last 60, 70 years have also been able to maintain some degree of stability and protection in some of those states, as well as the creation of the Jewish state of Israel. Jews are both precarious in some contexts and also empowered or middlemen between the disempowered and the colonial or governmental powers. And then there's the Jewish reckoning with race, which is the more immediate frame of the book. Jewish thought, Jewish ethics, Jewish practice hasn't really come to grips with questions of anti-racism and the understanding of race from uh, a religious or ethical or even political philosophical perspective within Jewish discourse. Right. I'm really excited that you are tackling all of those issues. How, how did you choose to focus the book on that, on that collection of topics? I have been teaching for many years, a course called race and Judaism. This was uh, framed as a general education class at temple and it involved wrestling with definitions of race, the history of race science, anti-Semitism in Europe, as well as Israel-Palestine questions, and the history of American-Jewish interactions with black freedom struggle. I thought I would write a kind of mega book of the history of all of that, or at least a a kind of treatment of all of that. And uh, speaking with an editor a few Decembers ago, uh, we sat down and looked at the types of papers I had been writing and projects I had been thinking about. 
and came to the conclusion that a version of that book is very doable, but one which focuses mostly on the questions of race and Jews after 1967. The action happens in my project after roughly 1967. After 1967, you see in Israel, in the Middle East, uh, Israel becoming a kind of conquering nation, which is now occupying uh, Arab territory after defeating several Arab armies in battle. And that reverberates around the world the perception of Jews, the perception of Israel as now a kind of player on the world stage. Amongst the far left, this switches their assessment of Israel from being a kind of spunky socialist country to a imperial power hostile to the interests of the third world. I want to talk about some basics when it comes to thinking about race and Jews in the Western world today. So just to qualify this discussion, for the most part, I think you've mentioned this before, that we're, we're talking mostly about Ashkenazi Jews, Jews of European descent, who are the majority in the U.S. and Europe. Yes. What race are Ashkenazi Jews considered now in the U.S.? Uh, well, that's, that's an interesting question. Jews at some point in the history of the United States were designated on the census as, I believe, Hebrew or Israelite. I can't remember. And, and the Jewish community lobbied and advocated to remove that designation. This is back in the 19-teens sometime. So Jews were always considered white, but a distinct kind of white. And the way that they work by law considered white is that they could own property, they could not be enslaved, they were not Native Americans, and they were not black, uh, dis- black people or descendants of Africans or slaves. So Jews have been white, although it's always been a tentative whiteness, and in so much that their religious category was something other than Christian. Hmm. Uh, and I should also note some of the first groups of Jews that made their way to the New World were what we might today call Sephardi Jews. Mm. These are descendants of Spanish and Portuguese-speaking peoples. So the first Jews who came to the United States, who, while recognized not as natives or as uh, Africans, were today what we might call people of color in so much that they were probably darker-skinned and they came from Spanish-speaking, Portuguese-speaking areas. So today, Ashkenazi Jews in the United States are seen by law, obviously, because the laws have sort of removed some of this stain of non-whiteness, but also by the majority of the population as white. So Ashkenazi Jews are white, except for elements of the anti-Semitic right who see Jews as a kind of chameleon people who are, they look white, but they're really not. They fight against white interests, they are genetically distinct, and they are uh, harmful to the real white people and their, their projects. I know the idea of race is very different in Europe and Israel, but are Ashkenazi Jews also considered white outside of the U.S.? Yes and no. So in, in Russia, up, up until the R- Russian revolutions of the early 20th century, Jews were seen as, I think they were referred to as black in Russian language. And by black, that doesn't mean that the Russians looked at their Jewish neighbors and said, oh, they're from Africa. 
is that blackness is a designation of otherness. So the, the concept white isn't really, let's say, operating in the same way in Russia and other parts of Europe as we would understand it. Let me put this another way. Ashkenazi Jews, even though they have like white-ish skin, right? They're not, you know, the Asians, they're not Africans, they're not, let's say, super swarthy people, are still seen as a race apart. And that's because the way that race works in most of the world is different from the way that we talk about race in the United States. In Europe, Jews were seen as uh, a group of people who are descended from, according to their own legends and stories, uh, a, a family of tribes from the Middle East. And maintaining that racial purity has been part of a kind of, uh, or let's say that family integrity has been part of Jewish culture, according to their uh, accounts. And so they are different from we Poles, or we French people, or we Anglo-Saxon. But then again, Anglo-Saxons, the British, they look upon the Irish as a different race, a, a, a race of people who are kind of culturally inferior to the, uh, the British and whose lands were colonized by the British over the centuries. So Jews are seen as a different national group. That might be a more comprehensible uh, mm. category. And mm -hmm. so when nation states start to assert themselves in the modern period, the groups of Jews who are waving the flag and singing the anthem are seen by their neighbors as not really Polish because they're not Catholic, mm. are seen as not really uh, French because they're Jews, they're Semites, uh, or seen by uh, Hungarians as not really uh, Hungarian, even though uh, Jews speak the language and serve in the armies and whatnot as much as anyone else. So for most of history, Jews are perceived as a race somewhere between white and non-white. And for your book, you're looking at how this interacts with anti-racism movements starting in the 1960s. So how were Jews involved in the 1960s American Civil Rights Movement? Sure. Well, that's a happy story for the most part in the American Jewish memory and also the historical record in that Jews were disproportionately supportive of black freedom struggles and, and not just the post-1955 civil rights movement, but Jews were disproportionately represented in organizations and projects around black freedom struggle going back to the turn of the century. That's, this has real sociological reasons why this is. It's not because Jews are uh, magical anti-racist people, but rather that Jews, for the most part in the United States and cities, uh, the newspapers they read and the kind of liberal left culture that they were part of in those cities made black uh, freedom concerns their concern. So that if you were Jewish, and you would read it in New York in 1920, you would be reading Yiddish newspapers, which foregrounded the racism against black people in the South. Oh, wow. Uh, in a way that the problems of, say, Native Americans was not front page news. So the economy of attention of, of Jews reading in their Jewish newspapers in the cities was around, among other things, 
uh, problems of racism. Jews also saw problems of racism as harbingers of their own security or insecurity uh, in that racism and anti-Semitism many saw as closely connected. Now, this is not to say that Jews were like categorically non-racist or anti-racist, but rather there were important gatekeepers who saw that black, the status of blacks in America was a problem and that nativism and white nationalism, what we call today white nationalism, was something that Jews were going to uh, be, should be concerned about and that a, a, a triumphalist white nationalism was not good for Jews. Strangely, the Irish in America in the, in the 19th century did not feel the same way, and, and rather that Irish were more than happy to be brought into a kind of gentleman's pact of whiteness with other uh, nativist groups. And so the Irish, for political reasons and for cultural reasons, uh, distanced themselves from black freedom struggles even though in theory the Irish, like the Jews, were had been a persecuted people and might have also forged coalitions with black workers. Um, okay, well that's that's like 19th and early 20th centuries. If you zoom fast forward to the 1950s, Jews are disproportionately represented in the white people, young white people that go down to march for civil rights. Jews are disproportionately uh, part of the uh, donors to the civil rights movement. Uh, Jews are disproportionately the number of lawyers who are representing civil rights cases. And it's really an extraordinary moment. Now, that doesn't mean that most Jews are, let's say, uh, anti-racist or don't have a racist bone in their body. It's just that Jews, both individually, uh, in, in that those individuals who went down to the South or who served as lawyers, but also institutionally took stands against uh, racism and in support of the civil rights movement. It was a very extraordinary time. However, it starts going south in the late 60s. So again, in the late 60s, the black freedom struggle has a more pronounced radical left wing, which is now making those liberal Jews nervous, especially as those black uh, power advocates are also critiquing the state of Israel uh, in a kind of coalition of uh, guerrilla third world movements in the late 60s. So the Black Panthers and SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, uh, take stances uh, in favor of Palestinian guerrillas and against the state of Israel. And this is the first time that American Jews are hearing such a caustic critique, and it's coming from what in the liberal Jewish imagination were allies. And, and so this is very important. So after the Six-Day War, black power leftists critique Israel in a way that Jews had never heard such a critique. And this makes many Jews nervous. And it doesn't buck Jewish support for, say, black liberal politicians or institutional relationships with black notables in the cities. It just means that there's a scary far left in the black community, which Jews are now wary of. And you see that today. You see Jews wary of Mark Lamont Hill or of Black Lives Matter's uh, program for international policy, or you see it in Jewish suspicions of black 
uh, leftists like um, Ilan Omar or um, even throwing in there Louis Farrakhan, who is not mm-hmm. a person on the left, but at all. In fact, I would say he's part of a kind of weird religious right, but he is lauded by um, some anti-Israel or critical of Israel activists as being a, a, a kind of role model. And so this is all very problematic in the Jewish mind. And the Jewish establishment connects the dots between that uh, far left critique of Israel and black people. If I'm thinking about the trend here in the early 60s or even before that, American Ashkenazi Jews felt that they they were white, but they had and they had privilege, but it was in their best interest to support anti-racist, especially civil rights movements for black Americans, because, you know, getting rid of racism everywhere will ultimately help protect Jews in the States. Yes. Then then Israel becomes more powerful at the same time that uh, black political movements like uh, the Black Panthers become a little more radical and suddenly the view turns so that Jews are no longer seen as another minority who are here to support a privileged minority to support, but they are also the oppressors of people of color all over the world. Right. Because this whole time that say liberal Jews and even liberal synagogues and liberal Jewish organizations have been speaking out for black civil rights uh, interests. There's also been an economic relationship between uh, now, when I say blacks and Jews here, I'm being very broad, right? right. There, are, there are black Jews, and uh, and of course there are many poor Jews. But that there's always been an ec- an economic relationship, in as much as that Jews were white people, and they were living in proximity to black communities. And and let me quote Tony Kushner's great play, uh, Angels in America. There's a scene where the right wing lawyer uh, Roy Cohn says to a black nurse, my people were the first people to be able to hire your people to Mm. sweep the store on Saturdays. So that blacks see Jews as, and and I don't say Jews in general, although sometimes that's true, but specific Jews as landlords, they see Jews as uh, shopkeeps who are hiring them or keeping them out of the store or running up the credit. Uh, They see Jews as an economic, uh, a force of economic domination in black communities. Uh, also that Jews were teachers and social workers. So in, in, as James Baldwin pointed out in an essay in the New York Times, that Jews are kind of like the face of whiteness for black people in the cities. Uh, especially, so in, in New York in 1960, uh, the social worker, the lawyer, the teacher, the shopkeeper, maybe the union boss, all these people were Jewish uh, ethnically, uh, and only like the police were not Jewish, they were probably Irish. So blacks saw Jews not just as like, oh, look at these liberal white people helping us. They saw Jews as like the face of the, of whiteness, uh, keeping them down in uh, the racism of the, of the uh, northern cities. So, uh, so that complicates the story. How does this affect, how is this affecting civil rights movements today, both, you know, like Black Lives Matter or um, the Women's March, and then also Jewish leftist groups are 
Jews who want to be more involved in fighting the good fight. How yeah, is this sure. manifesting itself? So uh, all this all this came to be, I think this is kind of my my take on this, is that Jews were white, so they enjoyed the privileges of whiteness in America. That is, uh, if you were not an Orthodox Jew, as the majority of American Jews are not Orthodox, you you just look like to your neighbors a white person. So you can get a line of credit from the bank. You can own a business. There's no discrimination in housing or employment or in education. Uh, and so Jews benefited from whiteness. But at the same time, they have a very sharp memory of being discriminated by Nazism, by anti-Semitism, by nativism. And so Jews are both privileged in so much as they're white, they don't experience the headwinds that others, communities of color experience. Uh, and they become successful middle and upper middle class peoples, professional peoples. However, they have a memory of being oppressed, of being something other than white, of being a minority in Christian America. And that keeps the Jewish community on its toes, uh, keeps it liberal, keeps it hostile to forces of reaction. So the Jew confronts the black, I'm being very sort of like Bayberian here and talking mm-hmm. about, uh, the Jew confronts the black and says, we too are oppressed. We too, uh, the Klan hates us and wants to drive us out of America too. However, the black person says to the Jewish person, well, but you're doing pretty well for yourself, right? Nobody's coming and attacking you like they attack us. Nobody's keeping you out of schools. Nobody's keeping you out of the unions. Nobody's uh, exploiting your community. In fact, some of the people exploiting our community are people from your community. So uh, this dynamic is very complicated because Jews who don't see themselves as white in the way that white nationalists see themselves as white uh, try to cast themselves as not quite white, Mm -hmm. not black, certainly, but as people who are also besieged by nativism and nationalism. Uh, And those other communities say, what are you talking about? You are all our wealthy community. Uh, You all are white. And frankly, from what I hear, you guys are also exploiters of my people. Well, this gums up relationships when, and I'll give you very concrete examples, when Jewish, well-meaning, but kind of uh, not so nuanced Jewish kids at a college want to become part of multicultural groups or coalitions. And so a Hillel group might come to a, a coalition or a multicultural center and say, hey, we're Jews. We're, we're part of the multiculture. You know, in other words, we're not just part of the main culture. We are minorities, too. And the students of color or their organizations say, uh, no, you can't be part of our groups. You have a well-funded Hillel or, and or you're white people. Judaism is a, is a religion. And so you're, you're just white people who have a different religion. And so you can't be part of our coalition. And what we're seeing in the last, really since 2002 or so, is that college campuses are turning away Jewish students because of a perceived real or, or, or not real, a perceived support of the state of Israel, no matter how critical or how um, ambivalent or how 
maybe uh, non-political to that support is. So, uh, so Jews are now sort of, uh, who want to be part of multiracial coalitions are shut out, not just because they're white people, but also that they are perceived as being uh, supportive of, of the state of Israel uh, and thus oppressors of Palestinians who are peoples of color. So what would you say to someone you know, who says, okay, well, why do they need to be part of the multicultural organization? Why do they need to be accepted, you know, uh, recognized as a minority by a university? They are, white, white Jews are doing pretty well. Um, what would you say in response to that? Sure. Well, I, I think this is part of some of what my book is trying to get to. Uh, like, Jews sometimes don't need to be part of those coalitions and should should be humble in in interacting with them and understand that 18, 19, 20-year-olds who only know Jews as wealthy oppressors <laughs> are not going to understand why a, why a Jewish group wants to come to them and be part of their, play in their playground. But there are other cases where, like I was teaching in Wisconsin last year, and in Wisconsin, there's very few people of color. Uh, the, there are very few African-Americans uh, up, up in the, uh, near Green Bay, Wisconsin, let's say. Uh, and so the Jewish students did feel like they were kind of besieged by a kind of, a, not oppressive, but dominating Christianity and did feel like a minority. And so Jewish students were welcomed more easily into the fold of being a minority in those schools than, let's say, UCLA, where Jews are a very big part of the L.A. population uh, and uh, dominate the representations on the faculty and the administration. Uh, in other schools, that's not the case. So uh, a Jewish student in Iowa or Wisconsin uh, might be welcomed and might be appropriate for them to go to the to the multicultural centers and the uh, organizations of color and try to be good coalition partners. It maybe does not make sense if at Brandeis or UCLA or Harvard that Jews need to be part of these coalitions. Uh, Jews are part of the power structures in those settings where they're not so much in Wisconsin or Iowa. Minnesota. Yeah, so it's based on the context of of where the, the very specific situation of where Jews are and how much power do they have in that situation. Right, and also okay. to be, be conscious to be conscious that uh, Jews uh, are do enjoy white privilege, but they also don't have other sorts of privileges. So the way I would break it down was. Jews no longer, although they did at one point, no longer have a problem of, uh, let's say, getting access to capital, opening businesses, living in certain neighborhoods, coming to certain schools and not being harassed, uh, admitted, getting admitted to college, getting a job at a law firm, or uh, uh, becoming a doctor and getting a job at a hospital. So that kind of economic discrimination and marginalization while it, it, it happened in patches to Jews during the uh, American uh, experience, no longer really, there's no really headwinds for Jews on that. There are and have been very powerful headwinds for, let's say, 
uh, African Americans living in certain neighborhoods, getting access to certain public schools, getting access to capital. Uh, there, it's more akin to, let's say, Muslim Americans who are still looked upon with suspicion and surveillance by uh, law enforcement. Uh, Jews no longer have to worry about that. What Jews do have to worry about is that they do have this overwhelming memory of being a targeted group, targeted by the Klan, targeted by white supremacists. And the last few years, and maybe this is why this book uh, hopes to be part of this conversation. In the last few years, there have been very visible and tragic attacks on Jewish or uh, institutions, on Jewish people in the United States in a way that we have not seen uh, in, uh, you know, maybe a hundred years in the United States. Uh, and that's produced a consciousness amongst Jew Jews that, hey, the white nationalists hate us too, and they're gunning for us. However, Jews also enjoy the protection of the state. So many synagogues have a police person assigned to uh, the synagogue at high holidays. Whereas uh, while Jews are comfortable with that, African-Americans would not be, that the relationship with police to blacks is different than to Jews. Uh, so this, all this has produced a kind of new consciousness of Jewish vulnerability. The, the X factor here is Israel. Because as American Jews uh, start, I haven't been very much involved with Israeli politics in, in the ways they were 40 years ago. Uh, the, the politics of Israel starts to complicate the perception that Jews are a besieged minority. Uh, from the perspective of Israel, Jews are the oppressors, the, the oppressors of Palestinians. They, the Israeli state was a collaborator with apartheid South Africa. And so all these old and current uh, complications make the relationship between contemporary, especially young Jews and Jewish activists, uh, fraught when faced with other coalitions of people of color who are very conscious of Israel's status as a juggernaut uh, power in the world. Do you think that this is different for different generations of Jews in the U.S.? Do you think that, um, and generations of activists in general, do you think that, you know, baby boomers are approaching uh, being part of multicultural anti-racist movements differently than millennials are? Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, not to say, okay, boomer to like the previous 60s generation, but they, uh, Jewish activists really did not, as, as they say, check their privilege when they were working with black coalitions. So some of the tensions that emerged in black-white coalitions in the 60s had to do with the fact that Jewish activists uh, were not very conscious of the power dynamics between blacks and whites in those groups. Um, Jews often, because of our cultures, that the way that we have developed uh, a Jewish kind of culture in the Northeast uh, came to kind of dominate those groups and to uh, kind of shortchange spreading out the leadership capabilities. This is also true on a gender axis too. So men, as they dominated with their voices and their uh, insistence and their opinions, uh, dominated women's voices. So also Jewish activists came to dominate people of color in those coalitions. 
so that was one of the reasons why those white black coalitions started falling apart. Uh, so today's multiracial coalitions, the millennial activists, and I should name some groups like J. Fred, Jews for Racial and Economic Justice, uh, like uh, Ben the Ark, like If Not Now, like the Never Again is Enough uh, effort from the summer. They have worked with and have been very sensitive to the concerns of indigenous groups of, for example, um, when I say indigenous groups, I mean like organizations that are made up and compose and advocate for the rights of undocumented or immigrants, groups that are composed of and advocate for the interests of African-Americans. So rather than take the lead and call the shots, these, these Jewish coalitional efforts have been very happy to take a kind of back seat and listen to those other organizations and what they want rather than dominating the conversation. Now that dominating the conversation isn't so much about being Jewish so much as being white. Uh, white people like saying, I know what we should be doing and here's what we should be doing. So yeah, absolutely. Millennials organize much better. Uh, there's also, there are some, uh, I think, uh, problems still, but Jewish left and liberal organizations today are a lot more sensitive. So there's been a recent surge in anti-Semitic activity and a rise in violence against Jews from white nationalist groups. How has this changed the way that Jews are approaching activism and their relationship with non-Jewish anti-racist groups? One new factor besides the upsurge in white and very explicit white nationalists and anti-Semitism is that young Jews are much more conscious of the internal diversity of Jews themselves. So there's the, the uh, non-Ashkenazi Jews, whether they are uh, Jews of color or whether in, in so much as that they are of African descent or Asian descent or Mizrahi Jews, Jews whose, let's say, grandparents uh, came from the Middle East to uh, uh, settle either in Israel or the U.S., uh, that Jews of color have also now taken their own voice and amp amplified it in these spaces. And so many young Jewish organizations are very conscious of the status of Mizrahi Jews, whether they're Mizrahi American or whether they're Israeli uh, Jews who are Mizrahi, and put them, or let's say they have become part of the faces of these groups and have been of concern. So now there are discussions within Jewish groups about making sure there's representation of Jews of color. Uh, that, would that conversation would never have happened for 10, 15 years ago. And is that, is that related to the white nationalist activity? Uh, no, it, it, it happened to dovetail. So mm -hmm. in so much as that Jews of color have taken a more visible and vocal standing within young Jewish, let's say, spaces and organizations, also happens to be the time when white nationalists and anti-Semitism has started to become a, a, a more visible phenomena to everybody. Now, when the white nationalists are complaining about Jews, they're not thinking about black Jews of color. They're not thinking about 
Mizrahi Jews and that sort of internal Jewish dynamic uh, of, let's say, intra-Jewish tensions. They're not thinking about Ethiopian Jews. They're thinking about Ashkenazi Jews who they believe are traitors to the white race and who control and dominate financial, economic, uh, entertainment, uh, the banks, the government, the, the academy, and so forth. They're not, they're not thinking about the internal diversity. Uh, the, what's happened in the last few years, so I'll give you examples. Charlottesville March for the Tiki Torches, the Unite the White Right rally in 2017. The, they were chanting, uh, you will not replace us, and then they switched the chant to Jews will not replace us. Well, at the time, I thought that was really strange because Jewish Americans are not having a lot of children. You know, they're not you know, growing in, in big numbers. Why are they saying we will not, you know, you will, Jews will not replace us? The theory amongst white nationalists is that Jews are a kind of uh, fifth column uh, that is a bunch of race traders who are masterminding the downfall of the white race because Jews are advocating for open borders immigration of non-white people, weakening white interest by uh, putting forward what they call cultural Marxism, uh, which is just a kind of synonym in their minds for like kind of liberal left ideology in the academies. In other words, they see behind all the things that oppose white nationalism, they see a Jewish hand. The biggest hand they see is George Soros, the uh, the very wealthy philanthropic uh, investor who has been a funder of a lot of liberal movements from gun control to peace in Israel-Palestine to funding the Democratic Party progressive wing. So they see George Soros as part of this problem. So George Soros has replaced in the white nationalists of today what the Rothschild banking family was for turn-of-the-century Europe, the shady Jewish cabal, which which is behind all the ills of the true white people or the true national interest. Okay, so if we're understanding anti-Semitism today in America, mm-hmm. it's more about what is perceived as like the Jewish conspiracy, which is almost that Jews are being too liberal. Yes. And championing, championing other minorities as opposed to what it might have been in the past, which is that Jews were a minority that would just was too populous. Jews have been blamed for all sorts of things. Human rights, democracy, communism, capitalism, homosexuality. So the, the playbook of what sort of evil, alleged evil, Jews are blamed for has rotated over the, over the decades. This new upsurge of anti-Semitism uh, amongst the white nationalists sees liberal sees the fact, and I think this is very crucial, that let's say something like seventy to eighty percent of Jewish Americans are opposed to Donald Trump, for example, or will vote for the Democrats. They see this as part of the problem. It's liberal Jews, well placed in the American cultural landscape, political landscape, that are responsible for the undermining of white culture, white status, making white people feel guilty. And so when President Trump says things like, there's a lot of Jews who are traitors, 
who vote for the Democrats, who are not loyal to Israel. This is a very bizarre twist on the old accusation that Jews were disloyal to their own country. So now, loyalty to the United States, Jews have to be loyal to Israel. This is what, and now, not that Trump has a logic, but there seems to be some sort of bizarre logic here. In other words, you Jews really should be good, good nationalists and support the interests of the state of Israel, which are just about the same as the interests of the, of the right-wing part of the United States. So that's yeah. a weird twist. Meanwhile, in, in Israel, 80% of the Jews love Trump because Trump has allowed for some of the, the worst nationalist impulses through policy to come out and has reversed longstanding American policy against, for example, recognizing uh, East Jerusalem as the cap as part of, the, of Israel and not occupied territory for lifting the illegality of settlements in the West Bank. Uh, this is terrible for the peace process. It has been a profound reversal of American policy on Israel for 50 years and is a slap in the in the face to not just the Palestinians, but also to much of the Western industrialized democracies who have been kind of united strategically on these uh, positions that resist Israeli nationalism. So to me, it sounds like, well, I guess I'll ask your your opinion on this. As we're going, are we rewriting the definition of racial groups or nationalistic groups in, in a global way? So instead of you know, white and non-white in the U.S. Is society now saying, well, we have white nationalists versus white sympathizers with people of color? You know, is our our new definitions being written up? Right. Well, one thing we can think about is that when we talk about racism, we're talking about relationships of power. We're not talking about, uh, I hate people because of X. It's rather seeing groups Uh, It's rather the systemic uh, situation of some groups having power over others and taking practices and policies to systematically disadvantage others. So nationalism is not merely like pride of place or pride of country, but nationalism is a sort of assertion of the domination of that nation over either a part of its own population or over populations adjacent to it. Let me give you the Israeli example. So in Israel, the Israeli nationalist mode holds that non-Jewish residents of Israel or citizens of Israel, especially Arabs, are to, are to be uh, ideally removed, uh, but in the meantime, to be put under surveillance by the state, and to be systematically disadvantaged by the state. So that means that, yes, there are Arabs who are judges and Arabs who go to uh, medical school in Israel, but that is in the face of structural disadvantage to Jewish Israelis who are the dominant group. This has a racial component to it as well. Within Israeli society, non-Jews, especially Arabs, are structurally disadvantaged and excluded from the mechanisms of power and policymaking. This is playing out, too, in places like Poland and Hungary, where, yes, here and there, 
there's a Jewish official or a Jewish lawyer or somebody in the government who's Jewish, but Jews are also been put on probation as not really part of the Hungarian or the Polish national project. So this kind of ethno-nationalism has now become a global force, and you see that playing out in the Trump administration and its supporters. So not everybody in America has to be Christian, right? You can have a Jew, Jewish person like Stephen Miller, who's advocating for the worst sort of exclusivist, nativist policies, but that the United States should be a country that's dominated by white people and white people's agenda. So yeah, that, this sort of nationalism has a racial component to it. Uh, not that it never didn't, it always has, but that racial component is more complicated than merely saying we should not have any members of X in our, in our boundaries. It's more about a systematic institutional exclusion rather than like, let us generate some hate and throw everybody into, into the uh, concentration camps or over the border. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure if you're there yet because you're still writing the books, but do you have recommendations for American Jews who feel in the middle of the conflict where they want to be on the right side of history and want to be more involved, to be more involved in anti-racist movements, but feel confused about where they should leverage their privilege and, you know, even what their status of safety is right now? Sure. Well, there's a lot of, there's a lot of interesting resources here and there. Uh, And I'm I'm thinking of, for example, Jews for Racial and Economic Justice has a very interesting uh, guidebook on anti-Semitism, which unpacks the relationships, a lot of these relationships we've been discussing. Uh, it's a, it's free online. Also, uh, Temple University grad April Rosenblum has a very famous pamphlet uh, that was written for the anarchist movement in 2007 called "The Past Didn't Go Anywhere: A Guide for Addressing Anti-Semitism in Our Movements." Uh, I, I think that's a very interesting document to look at. That is also uh, a way of non-Jews helping to be sort of like brought up to date about what they're looking at. So most non-Jewish activists will say, well, Jews are not a race, even though Jews have been a racialized people. That is, they have been made into a race by communities they've been living amongst. One recent book that does a very good job of unpacking the kind of dynamics between uh, anti-Semitism on the left, and that is like the Labor Party and in Palestinian advocacy work, is a book called Strange Hate by Keith Kahn Harris. He's a British sociologist and commentator on Jewish life. I also think Deborah Lipschatz's new book, just called Anti-Semitism, isn't a bad recap of the history of anti-Semitism and how it goes down today. Now, what Jews should do, well-meaning Jews should do, there really isn't the perfect book for this. It's more about looking to the actions and advocacy projects of certain groups like Bend the Ark um, and Jews for Racial and Economic Justice and If Not Now. So yeah, I mean, it's a complicated question because there are different types of Jews in America doing different things, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, There are already politicized Jews who are not sure what to think about the Jewish community. 
there are um, not politicized Jews who are liberals who vote Democratic, who can't stand Trump, but also who might be very suspicious of like the Women's March mm -hmm. and Linda Sassur, Sansor's uh, involvement with it. Uh, there are Jews who are fully ready to say we have nothing to do with the state of Israel. And then there are Jews who have this like lingering, vague, sentimental attachment to the state of Israel. Maybe they have family and they're not sure how to think about things. On that, I would recommend Peter Beinhardt's book, uh, The Crisis of Zionism. I think that really unpacks the issues very well. Those are three, three books off the top of my head. Okay, so I'm going to ask a very, I, uh, I don't want to say it's a selfish question, but there's a self-interest in this question. Uh -huh. When I think about this topic, what I keep coming back to is I worked for the city of Seattle for a while, and um, they had some really great race and social justice trainings that all the employees had to take, but everyone had to go around the room and say what race you were. When we started, you know, when you introduce yourself, you say your name, where you're from, and your race. Right. And I always struggled with that question because I wanted to say white, but everything that we have just talked about in this conversation, if you had to introduce yourself and your race while also alluding to, to all of the complexities that go with that, how would you answer that question? Well, I would say... Uh, well, I usually check other when, when asked about my race on forums. But I would say Jewish, because we have been a racialized community. We, Jew, Jews in America don't tend to identify Judaism as a race, but we have been racialized, which means that others have said, hey, you guys are, are a group apart. That means we are a race. That doesn't mean... We are in a, a race in, in this American sense of having a different skin color, but we are a race apart. And frankly, I would advocate that Irish people of Irish descent identify as Irish as well, uh, or Germans identifying as Germans. I think whiteness is not a legitimate category to hold a proud identity, but being German is, or being Irish is, mm -hmm. Jewish is. Uh, but being Jewish also is a kind of rejection of whiteness. When we say we're, somebody made this goofy song called I'm not white, I'm Jewish. And, you know, a lot of Jews are kind of happy with that. Now, at the same time, we do enjoy white privilege. So we can't just say we're a race like you black people or Latinos or Asians, uh, because we also have the privileges of whites, of whiteness, of status within the society. Uh, so, yeah, I would say identify as, as Jewish and uh, let that be the beginning of a long, longer, larger conversation. The contrary opinion to Jews being a race, and, and a, certainly it's not a consensus, is that uh, Jews are just a religion. This is something Palestinian advocates will say. They'll say, Jews, you, you don't have a national identity. You're just a religion. And I think that's very disingenuous because a lot of Jews do not say we are just blank people with a religion. Jews have been saying, not all Jews, but a good uh, significant part of Jews have been saying that we are a nation, we are a people for, uh, since the rise of Zionism, roughly 130 years or so. Uh, and to deny that we have a national consciousness, it's like saying to the Kurds, 
you're really not a people. You're just a bunch of like, I don't know, scallywag Muslim half Arabs or something, right? You deny people their own self-identification. It's like saying to the Palestinians, you're really not a people either. You're just people who happen to be caught in the crossfire of the battle over the Holy Land. You have no history. You have no identity. Palestinian national identity is very real to Palestinians, and they would identify themselves as a people. And so I think Jews should be allowed to be identified as, as their own people. Um, now, when somebody asks, what race are you? There's also weird dynamics in that, in that question, too. Uh, it, it, in so much that um, how we identify as a race, raced subjects, racialized subjects in the U.S. might be different from what, how we might identify in other places. Yes, absolutely. Uh, is there anything else that I should have asked, but I haven't yet? Yeah, I, I do want to say a few, just a few things. We have time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my whole book also is premised on uh, identifying a gap in the way that especially American Jews talk about our own commitments politically and ethically around racial justice. Oftentimes you will hear that American Jews are for economic justice, racial justice, tikkun olam, welcoming the stranger. And often this is done in a very superficial manner. A rabbi might give a sermon arguing that we should stand for justice, but that's never quite fleshed out. At the same time, Jews, especially in the last 50 years, have been confronted with accusations that the Jewish religion itself is a racist project, that it excludes non-Jews, that it creates the distinction between peoples, and sometimes have been blamed for the origins of race itself. It's true that anti-Black Christianity draws much from the Old Testament in a distorted way to justify the exclusion of Black people and interracial uh, relations. At the same time, within the Torah itself, as much as there are forms of tribal exclusion, there are also commandments like to love the stranger and to treat the sojourner in the land with equality. And there are universal prophetic pronouncements that God is unhappy about the way that the Jewish people has been conducting itself. So the Torah itself speaks uh, two trends at least welcoming the stranger, but also excluding the stranger. And out of that matrix, Judaism has created certain types of religion and certain types of policies in different times and different contexts. So in Israel today, the radical right, uh, the radical religious right, brings up those passages and stories about exclusion and domination whereas the American Jewish community brings up those passages about inclusion, justice, and equality. So Jews as a community and Judaism as a religion has to be much more clear about where we stand about anti-racism and our relationships to these projects, even in the face of imperfect coalition partners who misunderstand the Jewish experience and Jewish history. The other big point in this is that 
Zionism, the Jewish national project, which culminated in the creation of the state of Israel, Zionism itself has been cast as a racist project, as a form of racial exclusion, a kind of apartheid. And that has to be reckoned with as well. So my project is, is not just about the, let's say, topical upsurge of anti-Semitism in the last, let's say, 15 years. It's also about long-term questions of where does the Jewish community stand in terms of anti-racism. My model for this somewhat is the Catholic Church, because the Catholic Church has taken in several encyclicals very clear stances against forms of race science, against forms of uh, racial domination. The American Catholic bishops have released several letters being very clear about what they mean by racism and the steps needing to be taken for racial reconciliation. And so by doctrine, the Catholic Church is against certain forms of racism and racial science. And I think the, I think the Jewish community also needs to, to wrestle with these questions and be very clear about them, because a lot is at stake, both the Jewish National Project and the status of American Jews vis-a-vis the other groups within the American tapestry. Hmm. Well, I want to thank you so much for a really engaging and interesting conversation. I, I feel like you've given me a lot more to think about. When are you expecting your book to be completed? Uh, I'm hoping, hoping to get it finished by June. And okay. then probably be a, another season before it gets published. Uh, I'm not sure what the timeline is on this. But as it does, I'll hopefully release some essays and uh, op-ed pieces to accompany them. If, there, if listeners are interested in your work um, and want to learn more about what you're doing or if you're speaking somewhere, where's the best place that they can find information? Um, well, one thing is I'm always willing to share. Uh, I have a bunch of uh, important pieces and aspects of my syllabus from the Race and Judaism course. Uh, so they can get in hold of me at elratzman at gmail.com. There really isn't a manageable resources for this outside of the group called Bacola Shon, which is a, a nonprofit dedicated to promoting the inner diversity of the Jewish people. That's a San Francisco-based group. And they have on their website a very nice uh, resource list. Also, a group's called Jews in All Hues, which is a coalition group between Jews of color and their allies, also has a lot of excellent resources. Fabulous. Okay, I will make sure all of those are in the show notes. Well, thank you so much, Elliot Ratzman, for your time. It was lovely talking with you. Thank you. Thanks for having me on your podcast. No problem. Have a good rest of your semester. Thanks. Take care. Bye. This episode was produced by me, Clarissa Marks, with music by the Rondo Brothers. If you like the show, you can support us by sharing it with a friend or by adding a review to your favorite podcast app. That'll make sure that other listeners can find us. You can connect with me on Twitter or Instagram at Clarissa R. Marks. And to hear more episodes, read transcripts, or learn more about the people or media we mentioned, visit our website, onwandering.co. Take care and see you next time. Mm-hmm.